Hi and welcome to The Crime Pod. I'm Sam. And I'm Katie. In this episode, I'm going to tell Katie a story that I think contradicts practically everything I said about films in our previous episode. Today, I'm going to tell you about The Fault House Vampire. Most of you might have heard that that wasn't actually Caitlin. It was um, our friend Katie. Caitlin's on holiday and Katie is going to stand in for her this yeah. week. So I hope it, there was no forcing you into it. only cost you £50. Yeah. Bad. Bargain. Bargain. <laughs> <laughs> so I know that you, you quite like true crime as well. We're actually watching Mindhunter at the minute on Netflix. And yeah, on we're the Netflix party. to start season two, aren't we? Mm-hmm. So that's quite good. We recommend that. It's about kind of serial killers and them finding out, giving them a name, really, in the 70s. So Yeah, it was kind of before they were like known as serial killers. It's quite strange the way they talk about them, as if it's not a known thing. Mm-hmm. And we're kind of like, oh, come on, we could do a better job <laughs> than the FBI. <laughs> but do you know anything about the Fold House vampire? No, so I kind of, I thought I'll give it a wee Google because I thought vampires don't exist, but clearly <laughs> they do in some ways. Cause, but no, I didn't really look into it much because I thought it might be quite interesting to hear off of you. Yeah, well, perfect. Even better. Yeah, I'll, I'll listen to these podcasts. So. <laughs> well, sit back and relax. Um, <laughs> give me your opinion uh, and tell me if you think I'm wrong. <laughs> I'll start off. I will just give you a little bit of background. So it's called the Faldhouse Vampire. Faldhouse is a village in West Lothian. It did say online that it was halfway between Edinburgh and Glasgow, but I don't know, I feel it's probably closer to Edinburgh than it is Glasgow. I was thinking, quite unrelated, but I was thinking last week, I'm sure I looked at a cottage out there. Because the house prices have gone down since then. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> well, you can go live out there and live your vampire dreams. <laughs> maybe after this, I won't want to. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. <laughs> Disclaimer, this is nothing bad on Fault House. Please feel free to go live there. <laughs> sure, it's a lovely area. <laughs> <laughs> cheaper, though. Cheaper than Edinburgh, so on you go. <laughs> right, so to get to the story, I'll start. So I'm going to tell you about 21-year-old Thomas McKendrick. Now, I'll take you back to 2002. Thomas lived in Fault House with his mum and his sister. He was a normal 21-year-old young man. He wasn't known for causing trouble and he didn't hang about with the wrong crowds. So, you know, he wasn't what we would call, like, you know, youths going about and just shouting. No, exactly. He wasn't there to cause trouble or, you know, make a scene. He was just your usual guy. However, on the 11th of December 2002, Thomas was seen by his family for the very last time. So this was close to Christmas, obviously, December, it's Christmas for about three months nowadays. So quite a rough time, you know, to go missing. We'll start with missing. He hadn't been in contact with his family for a few days. And even on the 11th of December, he failed to return home. And, you know, mobile phones were about back then. They weren't huge. But, you know, a a quick text or something. Yeah, people weren't as glued to them back then as they are now. No, exactly. But even so, you could, uh, you knew everybody's house number. So if he was somewhere, he would have just called home and been like, right, I'm I'm here. 
XYZ. You know, there was nothing reported that they didn't have good family dynamics. You know, he wasn't going to run away from home. He, he was 21. So obviously his mum and his sister, they were, they were quite worried. So they, they reported him as missing and the police launched an investigation into his disappearance because he had failed to contact his family over the whole Christmas period. So, oh, wow. Which is a long time, and especially during Christmas. And the main thing as well, he didn't even pick up his employment benefits. So it's not like he was just, you know, away living his life, but ignoring the family, you know? Yeah, like so, money is the, the one thing that you don't always keep up. Yeah, exactly. Get the cash in, go live yeah. your life. <laughs> but during the investigation, the police searched the whole neighbourhood, the surrounding areas, and they were looking everywhere for Thomas, including the local quarry, because it was known that he just went there, you know, to, I don't know, take a breather, have a look about, have a walk. You know, there's a lot of places around these areas that you can go walking in because it's there's quite a lot of farms or wooded areas. So it's yeah, you're good. not right in the city, more like mm-hmm. rural. Yeah, exactly. But unfortunately, the, the police found nothing. On the 4th of January 2003, around four weeks after Thomas had been reported missing, the police found a bag of clothes that had been identified as belonging to Thomas. So these were just found in a wooded area, Okay. And not long after this discovery, they sadly found Thomas's dead body buried in a shallow grave nearby the bag of clothes and his neighbourhood in a dense wooded area. So what the police did was they conducted door-to-door inquiries um, with everyone in the neighbourhood. They They didn't have a suspect in mind, you know, they were just going about and they were asking if they knew anything that could have got Thomas killed or any information of what had happened. However, there was no obvious motive. They couldn't find anything as to why he could have been killed. It wasn't like, you know, part of a gang or causing trouble or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, because you said he was quite normal. Like, he never really had any trouble with people. Obviously, they found a body, so they had to send it off and get an autopsy report. And this is when, when the report obviously came back, it showed that kind of craziness of his murder and the horror that he would have endured mm-hmm. so it was reported that he had been stabbed 42 times and bludgeoned oh. over the head at least six times most likely with a hammer okay so this i mean you didn't need to do that six times <laughs> no like once he's gonna be dead after <laughs> being stabbed 42 times Exactly. However, this, obviously, it sounds bad, but it was a very much prolonged attack and that he Mm. was no doubt conscious for a long time of it. Oh, God. So, 42 times stabbed, bludgeoned over the head six times, alive for a lot of it. So, this is a horrific crime. This is, you know, this was murder. This wasn't an accident. Yeah, that's like something like a horror movie. Exactly. After the police found the clothes, they found the body of Thomas, they had the autopsy report, they were doing door-to-door investigations. The police searched the home of his best friend, Alan Menzies. So obviously they just went to his house to question him because, you know, on the day of his disappearance, he could have went there. They were very close friends, like, you know, Mm. best friends, had known each other forever, just went to each other's houses all the time. So, you know, it wasn't unusual. So the police thought, right, we will go to Alan Menzies and we'll we'll ask him some questions. Yeah. So the police searched the home of Alan and after a round of questioning, Alan just completely was acting very strange and 
you know, he just wasn't acting like an innocent person. Okay. Mm. So this obviously started to catch the eyes of the police because they, they didn't go there to, to charge Alan. They, they just went there to question him, search his house, see if anything of Thomas's was there. Yeah, you would do if they hang out all the time. Like Yeah, exactly. It's like if I was to come to your house and then I'm sure the police would find something of mine if you ended up murdering me or if I was just there before I got murdered, you know, not yeah. blaming you for anything. <laughs> <laughs> but not long after this first search, Alan overdosed on medication and he ended up in hospital for four to eight hours. So this was, you know, an attempt, a suicide attempt. And this obviously catches the police's eye mm-hmm. and does that make him guilty or is this just because you know his best friend has has just been found murdered is this a way to cope you, you don't know yeah it's true but yeah it's, it's a wee red flag though isn't it it's as if he's bottled it absolutely red flag number one we'll add that to the list <laughs> and here's probably another large red flag So obviously he survived the overdose and once out of hospital, his behaviour kept, you know, being really strange. He bumped into Thomas's mum at the shops and obviously, you know, if you're really good pals, you're going to be friends with their families. And he stopped to have a conversation with her, but he asked her how to get rid of (laughs) bloodstains. The mum? The victim's mum. He asked him. So, no. Yeah. This is this. Uh, how like, do you bring that up in conversation? <laughs> like, I don't even think they were in the washing up pile. You know, it was yeah. just you. You kind of think of it though. When I tell you more of the story, you would go back to this, and I would personally think, is this a form of bragging? Because you know, obviously, murderers and things. There's certain murderers, obviously, not all, that like to brag about their crimes. Because, you know, they've got that, they love to get caught, but they want to, you know. Yeah, that's part of it. They want to kind of leave people thinking. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And another thing that's been reported is that Alan's dad actually saw spots of blood dotted around their house. However, Alan had explained to his dad they had just badly cut himself, cleaned it up. And so his dad obviously believed him and, and he took it no further. Mm-hmm. because I guess he had no reason not to believe in his son at the time. Yeah, that's not where your mind's going to go. No, not not at all. And I guess if he did have a cut, you'd be more inclined to believe him. Not long after, Alan was taken into police custody for a second round of questioning. And this is where he gave a full confession and when the truth really came out. So this is just question number two, and it all just came pouring out of him. <laughs> Okay. Oh, I so, mean, if he's asking the mum how he's getting rid of blood, I mean, it probably couldn't have helped that needed to tell someone. Oh, absolutely. Like, he was, it was like a water was about to boil over, you know, <laughs> a pot. <laughs> anyway, throughout the questioning and the confession, this is when Alan's real obsession with vampires came to light, hence the name The Fault House Vampire. So... Alan had a complete obsession with vampires. But Thomas and Alan, obviously, like I said earlier, they had been friends for a really long time. Alan was a bit of a loner, but nonetheless, they were really good friends. Now, Mm -hmm. I'm going to jump a little bit and just say that obviously Alan, he was a quiet guy. He kept himself. He was antisocial. He would sit in his room with his curtains closed, but he was known for his violence. 
because at the age of 14, he was given a sentence of three years as he had stabbed a fellow classmate. Okay, so keep that in your mind. Obviously, it's got nothing to do with this case that I'm talking about, but he's a quiet guy. He's already, you know, had time because he stabbed a fellow classmate. He didn't stab him to death, but he's, he's got a violent streak. <laughs> Just a wee jab. A tiny wee jab and, you know, violent streak. <laughs> Enough to get him three years in jail. Okay. Right. So, but that obviously didn't stop Thomas being really good friends with them. You know, they got on really well. One day, though, he passed his Yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> <laughs> one day, obviously before December two thousand and two, but this was in two thousand and two. Thomas went to Alan's house with a film to watch, and the film was called Queen of the Damned. Now, this was released in two thousand and two, and it's a horror fantasy kind of genre. Okay, I don't think I've heard of that one. I hadn't heard of it until this case, so and I I must admit I haven't watched it. However, I'll give you a small kind of um, what's it called? Explanation. Synopsis. synopsis. <laughs> yes, I'll give you a synopsis of the film. <laughs> so obviously, it's about vampires, and Alan just absolutely loved it. He loved it so much that he got himself a copy and he watched it about three to four times a day, back to back, and he had apparently watched it over 100 times, you know, up until the murder. So I mean, you've probably done that with Jurassic Park, but, you, I mean, you get a tattoo, <laughs> you don't go around to be an <laughs> Exactly. You know, I like, like I, I do love films, but, you know, <laughs> there's an obsession and then there's an obsession. <laughs> I've never seen the film, like I said, but I did YouTube the trailer and it's not really my cup of tea, albeit I don't have a great taste in films and you know that for a fact. But this just seemed even not not that great. But it looks to be about a queen vampire. Um, she likes to kill practically everybody. And she joins up with a vampire-turned-rock-star man to take over the world whilst a group of ancient vampires try to stop them. So it's not Twilight or The Vampire Diaries, which is Definitely more of my not. cup of tea. I mean, when I was younger, I loved... Was it Little Vampire? Oh, that, yes. That I love that film. film. Yeah, That's more my cup of tea when it comes to vampire films. That one doesn't really sound good. No. But well, it must have been good enough for him to watch it that many times. Exactly. It's about, I'm not going to lie, it looked to be about the same quality of The Little Vampire. <laughs> Just not as good. <laughs> so this film made Alan become completely lost in a fantasy world of vampires and immortality. And he began to believe that the main character of the film, so the vampire queen, who was called Akasha, he began to believe that, you know, he saw her, they were kind of, you know, friends in a way. and that. He claimed that she would sit on the end of his bed and talk to him, you know. He even claimed sure. that Ak- yeah. he even claimed that Akasha had actually offered him immortality if he murdered someone. So this is right. this is huge. This is, you know, a proper obsession happening and it's kind of, you know, going into his mental behaviour. Throughout his obsession developing, he started to buy raw ox livers. He drained the blood out of them. He drank the blood. And then he also Oof. ate the raw liver. And I don't even like cooked liver, so I can't imagine. Oh, I mean, I was just going I can't even feed raw food. I tried to be on raw food. I couldn't do it. No. It's, <laughs> oh, like raw steak and things. Yeah, it was horrible. Oh, no. So. Oof. 
Yeah, that's sorry. So I don't know. No, I know. I don't know how he did it, and I don't know how Obi can do it either. To be honest, (laughs) well, Obi didn't cut. It wasn't cut out for it. Oh, good. No, he's he's too good for that. (laughs) So we'll cut forward. Um, we're on December the eleventh, two thousand and two. So obviously the, the day that he was last seen. It was reported though that Thomas went to go see Alan in his house, and so this is an account from Alan, and that they were chatting away in the kitchen you know just like friends do and then they got onto the subject of vampires so it's just a casual conversation (laughs) exactly like they had seen the film together and obviously alan had an obsession with it and i guess you know when you're obsessed with something you can kind of make it into any conversation that you want so they were just chatting away as friends do but alan has said when he was getting questioned and obviously reporting everything to the police and confessing He said that Thomas ended up saying something that he found really insulting towards Akasha. So remember, that's the the vampire queen. Yeah. And towards vampires in general. Oh, you know your audience. (laughs) Exactly. That wasn't going to go down well. No. And I'm sure Thomas kind of knew about his obsession. Obviously not as far as it was. Yeah. But he knew that he clearly loved it but this just made alan snap and obviously thomas wasn't expecting that at all so alan claims that akasha was actually in the kitchen when they were both having this conversation and that when thomas had mentioned the remark about akasha she turned her back to them as a form of disapproval so okay obviously you know there's three of them in the kitchen two of them are you know real people thomas and alan and obviously alan can see akasha and he he wasn't happy about that you know he he didn't want to disappoint her and so this is when he started to attack thomas to please akasha so in the kitchen you know because she turned her back on him in the kitchen he started by stabbing him in the neck face and body so thomas he's getting stabbed doesn't handle conflict well does he no not at all and remember though I, oh, I must have mentioned it a while ago at the start that with his obsession he claimed that Akasha had offered him immortality Yeah. so remember that this is kind of like a this is a step towards that so you know he thought right I'm going to attack her and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to attack him and I'm going to please Akasha Thomas tried to escape and he ran up to Alan's bedroom. So obviously I know in films and things when this is really happening, you're like, why are you running up to a bedroom, etc., etc. But, you know, he probably would have thought it's safer option, furthest away. He can close the door. You know, he ran yeah. up to his bedroom and this, hence the blood being all over the house and not just in the kitchen. So at the start, you know, how his dad had seen spots of blood about the place. Yeah. So this is because Thomas had went from the kitchen to the bedroom, having been stabbed. Now, Alan followed him up to the bedroom. He didn't obviously make it um, to save himself. So throughout the attack, Alan claims that Akasha was by his side the whole time, egging him on and encouraging him to keep going. After he had finished attacking Thomas and made sure he was dead, he turned Thomas's dead body onto its side to drain the blood out of it. Oh, no. Now, yeah. Now, I can feel where this is going. <laughs> mm-hmm. So Alan 
he has admitted to drinking two cups of Thomas's blood and he also said that he ate part of his skull. So he okay. had a nibble of his best pal. Now, oh. I mean, how is this police... Like, imagine being in that police interview. Like, you've just brought this person in thinking, oh, they were a wee bit funny in the first interview. We'll get them back in and we'll just, like, ask them a few more questions. And now you're hearing about them, like, eating his skull. Like, yeah, they would not have thought that was coming. Yeah. That's for sure. <laughs> That's crazy. Uh-huh. It's, yeah, that like, I... I just can't even, to be honest. Yeah, like, they didn't even have a suspect before that. Like, this guy's just confessed everything, which obviously was great to be able to, like, put this to sleep, but, like, they wouldn't have nothing to go. They wouldn't have been thinking, oh, yeah, we're looking for a vampire. Yes, no, (laughs) not at all. Like, it's crazy. And, you know, after obviously doing this, he believed that he had done what Akasha had asked for him and that he will now become a vampire and immortal. So after the murder, drinking blood, you know, and the skull situation, Alan knew that his dad was going to be home soon. So he started to clear it all up, you know, clean up his mess and he put Thomas in a wheelie bin and he later wheeled him out to the back to a wooded area nearby obviously, where he was found, and he put him in a shallow grave. He then went home and acted like everything was normal. I mean, that just shows he wasn't right. I mean, that's... Now, obviously, because he's just confessed to the police, he's going to get time in jail for this. So, you know, he's got to have his court case and everything. So that takes place in 2003. So while driving to his first court appearance obviously he gets driven by two police officers you know not he doesn't just drive himself to court but it's said that one of the detectives constable robert Lowe, he told the court that alan said how do you think things will go today i'm going to get 20 to 25 for this for doing him with a hammer and my bowie knife but i got his soul (laughs) so you know right this is why so he thinks it was worth it then. Yeah, like this is another it's quite mul- uh-huh. multiple red flags, and he still believes, even though he's going to court for this murder, that he got his soul. Things aren't looking good for him at all. Now, during his court case, the jury was told that Alan, who actually ended up changing his first name to Leon to honour the assassin from, you know, the film Queen of the Damned, they were told that he had become increasingly obsessed with vampires. So, obviously, we already know this from earlier on. Now, when police raided his home in January, they found videos, including the Queen of the Damned and one of the Vampire Chronicle books, Blood and Gold by Anne Rice. So, in this book, various passages, they had been handwritten, by Alan and many of them had been misspelt and pages of the book were shown to the jury including one which had been written by Alan and he had said the blood is the life I have drunk the blood and it shall be mine for I have seen horror it it does sound (laughs) like that doesn't it and this is like things that he is really believing so I don't know he's really in a fantasy world Shall we say that? Yeah, completely. Well, I mean, Mm -hmm. he was seeing her through the whole thing, Mm -hmm. which 
is completely ridiculous, but obviously in his head that does make sense. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Now, the jury have been told all this information, they've been given all the facts and, you know, the evidence, the books, etc, etc. But when the trial was taking place, Alan, he didn't want a life sentence or anything that was coming to him. So when the trial was taking place, he claimed that he was suffering from paranoid schizophrenia when he attacked Thomas, his best friend. Because of this claim, on the 8th of October 2003, Judge Roderick MacDonald told Alan, who at the time was 22, that he should serve at least 18 years before being considered for parole. Now, this is a life sentence, and Alan's obviously claimed that he was suffering from paranoid schizophrenia, but because of this, the jury at the High Court in Edinburgh, which is where the trial was taking place, they convicted him of murdering Thomas, and they also found him guilty of attempting to defeat the ends of justice. So this is because Alan, he denied the murder, but he did admit culpable homicide on the grounds of diminished responsibility. So he was claiming that he did this because he suffered from schizophrenia. Yeah, so he's kind of saying that it wasn't complete murder. You just... Yeah, it wasn't cold-blooded murder. It was his Well, in his head, he's done it because someone's like in his head someone's told him to do it which yeah. I suppose you would think that you're not to blame in a way exactly and <laughs> even though so, you completely are <laughs> yeah and but with this you kind of think well obviously mental health it's a big thing and this could have caused him to do this but this plea it was rejected by the crown so this wasn't accepted and in the end the jury and the judge they convicted him of this murder they gave him life with a minimum of 18 years. So this schizophrenia story, it, it didn't it didn't work for him. Now, they weren't buying what he was selling. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> what I did read was, it was a report from a psychiatric consultant. They supported Alan's claims about the schizophrenia. However, three other experts rejected this diagnosis and they told the court that Alan was not a schizophrenic. He was suffering from an antisocial personality disorder. He was a vivid fantasist, but this was not evidence of a mental illness, the doctor said. So you've got one report from a psychiatrist supporting that, yeah, he, he is suffering from schizophrenia. But then you've got three other experts completely rejected it, you know? Yeah. So That'd this... Taking those accounts then. Yeah, exactly. Three against one. I, I don't know how to do that like I guess if it was half and half or maybe if you had a lot more information or more reports to support it then fair enough because the fact that he has murdered his best friend and he believes that he's now immortal like surely like personally speaking I I think it does it it would be a hard thing yeah it would be a hard thing to say like he hasn't got it obviously they're the experts but schizophrenia is kind of hearing and seeing things that aren't actually there which is exactly what's happened there so there must be a way of distinguishing just maybe with his personality and stuff whether that's something that's actually a mental illness or if it's something that's just part of your personality that you've made up Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's a really tough one to really kind of decipher. I've just got a couple more things that I'll mention and then we can give our opinion. So obviously he's got the he has got 18 years, you know, and after the trial, Alan's solicitor, Amar Anwar, 
He said the case highlighted the social stigma surrounding mental health. So this is a quote from his solicitor. The continued taboo and the lack of understanding or support of schizophrenia and mental health in our community can only mean tragedies like this are more likely to happen, not less. You know, he really does support the fact that we're, this is 2002, remember, we're not supporting mental health, we're not taking it seriously. And also I'll say that the judge, he branded Alan as an evil and dangerous psychopath. So the judge said, three psychologists have diagnosed you as a psychopath. In my opinion, you're an evil, violent and highly dangerous man who is not fit to be at liberty. You subjected Thomas McKendrick to a savage and merciless attack. You totally lack remorse. And one last thing I'll say as well. You know, they've all left court and people are getting questioned, etc. Thomas's sister, Sandra Mary, who's 23, so you know they're close in age. She yeah. got questioned and, you know, asked how she felt. And she said, Alan got what he deserved. I believe he was not mentally ill. It was just an act. Oh. And lastly, one last thing, sorry. On the 15th of November 2002, Alan was found dead in his prison cell in Schott's prison from committing suicide. Oh. So that's that's the story of the Fault House Vampire. Do you, what's your thoughts and your opinions, if you have any, or, you know, it's your first time on the podcast, you can give them... Um, some feedback if you wish i know i must say it's been fun <laughs> it's fun hearing the story definitely yeah it's an interesting one because especially with the schizophrenia thing like you would assume that he's like a bit mental <laughs> you know you would assume that yeah he's definitely got something mentally wrong with him and although it's a horrific crime you'd be thinking oh well you have to you know some people just haven't got the mental capacity to live in a normal world and you know this makes sense in their head and things but yeah I suppose like his arrogance and stuff with it and the way he was talking about it that probably played into him not being diagnosed as schizophrenic because I mean I don't know anyone with schizophrenia but just from you know films and documentaries and stuff I think people are normally like quite sad when they have it you know like it's it's quite painful and it's mm-hmm. it's bad for them to have whereas he is almost enjoying the fact that he's got this person in his head that's helping him along in life and he's going to do this and you know it's it's going to benefit his later life because he's going to get immortality or something it's yeah it's more like a bragging mm-hmm. yeah and it's kind of like it's it's going to be he's going to be immortal it's all about him it's yeah. not yeah it's mm-hmm. very selfish it's not like he's not looking for help for it he's just saying oh well like I had to do this because I want to benefit myself mm-hmm. yeah that's Which a good point clearly he didn't get immortality no well <laughs> it ended that way, but... mm-hmm. which is I know it's obviously it's not the nicest thing to say but you know he he committed suicide so he was obviously in a really bad place mentally and but it's, it was only a year of his sentence, which I get, obviously, it, it's awful. But at the same time, you kind of think, like, when people do that, you just wish they yeah, had served won't. longer yeah. for what they had done. Even um, just, like, for some sort of rehabilitation of it, like, yeah. to, to give them time to realise what they've done. 
whereas yeah. you know a year is probably not long enough to wrap your head around that mm-hmm. yeah absolutely and the thing is I don't even know if you know obviously this was 18 years ago and it's now 2020 would his sentence be different would we maybe focus more on the mental illness side of things I don't know yeah that's interesting but, like probably yeah. would I mean even just with everything that's happening just now in lockdown with your work and things like people are a lot more concerned with other people's mental health and making sure that everyone's kind of doing okay in normal life so yeah like you probably would get some sort of lesser sentence or I, I don't know if he would have got put into a mental institution rather than a an actual jail possibly mm-hmm. yeah like people would maybe err more on the side of caution compared to 18 years ago yeah no you're absolutely right and I know at the very start I mentioned about contradicting myself because in the last episode I said that you can't become a murderer from watching films and then obviously this whole story is Alan becoming a murderer because he watched a film and he became obsessed with it. Now I don't know if it was all to do with the film like I'm still a strong believer that if you watch certain films or you know play certain video games that that does not make you a killer um yeah I mean we've all grown up in a time where your parents didn't mind you watching 18s like horror films and everything I mean I was definitely watched a few films that I shouldn't have when I'm younger but it doesn't yeah it doesn't really affect the way that you act in later life I suppose some people have like really addictive personalities and Mm -hmm. You know, if you if you find something that you're obsessed with, it probably does kind of consume your mind. But whether or not it can go as far as like changing your actions is a bit. Yeah, I don't know yeah. if I believe that. Yeah, no, I'm with you there, and like I do think obviously he watched this film and he became a murderer, but at the same time, I think it's still something in your brain, whether you're born with it or it gets knocked into you, or you know, it just clicks this was an awful murder and it's just a shame that there's people in this world that are like that and that we we can't help them and we we don't see it coming really but it it's just something that happens yeah you can be as and appear as a normal person in society like what he was and clearly behind the scenes he's just got a completely different mental state than your regular person his best pal in life and he's chucked him in a wheelie bin and stuck him out in the field mm-hmm. like, it, yeah it screams there's a lot of problems in this boy's head unfortunately yeah. but for someone that's supposed to have been pretty normal like <laughs> she don't know what's going on in people's heads yeah exactly exactly 